you are a New Zealander listening to this podcast, you will have come across my guest in some capacity, whether that's having driven past her name and face on an election billboard, seeing her on the news, or actively supporting her and the political party she is part of. Now, regardless of where you lie on the political spectrum, there is no denying that she is doing incredible mahi in serving our most underserved communities in her role as a member of parliament. As a nine-year-old, she came to New Zealand as a child refugee, escaping the oppressive regime and war that had descended on Iran in the 80s. She studied human rights and constitutional law at Oxford University before going on to practice law in New Zealand and for the United Nations. In 2017, she became the first refugee to be elected into New Zealand Parliament and has been working on a range of human rights issues, including refugee and migrant rights. As you can probably imagine, getting some time into her calendar was an act of patience spread out over several months. But towards the end of 2021, we finally managed to speak during Auckland's extensive COVID lockdown, and I am so excited to bring you my conversation with Green Party MP Goras Garaman. You mentioned before we started recording that your day is just like hectic. Is there such thing as like a typical day in the life of an, of an MP? Um, I think, to be honest, that there probably is, but I think there's a few of us who haven't had a particularly typical experience of being an MP. So I guess my getting attention for becoming potentially the first ever refugee MP, for example, even before I was elected, meant that I was doing media and community connections and that kind of work that was very unique to like a first-time candidate and so you know like filling in those those spaces is really daunting and really challenging and really humbling and all of those things and so it kind of means your work ends up being um, a little bit different and a little bit more intense and I'd say you know Chloe Swarbrick has had a really different experience obviously and then there's others who you know like it's kind of yeah it, it I, I I don't my typical day is led by and I guess being in a small party really defines that experience again because we have at least in the Green Party um we have portfolios like we actually if the minute you become an MP you hold a whole bunch of portfolios and because we cover the whole range of government so you know if something happens I have to lead on it you know, yesterday I had my work program and what I was doing, and then we found out that the government was about to announce a very expansive review of electoral laws. And because I'm the electoral reform spokesperson, it meant like really quickly putting out, a, like analyzing their statement, the ambit of the review, what we needed to highlight for the public, putting out a press release, doing a whole lot of media, then like, you know, trying to write to the minister. And it just pushes everything else to one side so it you do just kind of roll with the punches and sometimes that means with the news cycle or the work of government or whatever that you haven't decided was going to happen that day (laughs) yeah um you know how like in a normal corporate job you might have a lot of talk around like work-life balance is there such a thing as an MP there's certainly a lot of talk (laughs) about work-life balance um I don't yeah again I think I definitely look at backbench MPs and the big parties with a lot of envy because you kind of get to be and I, they work really hard too I'm not saying they don't work hard but it's um I just feel like our work is really undefined because we have portfolios rather than electorates and so you know like when there's a parliamentary recess 
which is when you're supposedly going to get more time off or whatever. We're not even necessarily home in our home base because we've got to cover the country. So like we go thematically, you know, I have constituents that are all across the country. So ethnic communities, refugees, migrants of color, and then there's like subject matter issues like justice and defense and whatever. So if someone's holding an event that's around like peace, I will go to Christchurch and do that, you know, like, and so we don't really get the parliamentary recess. Like I really, really, really cover that thing of being in your own bed for a couple of nights in a row kind of thing. And, you know, it's like the little things like that, that help my mental health. It's just like your world shrinking down, which is really relevant to the lockdown right now. <laughs> it, like at first it just feels like a little bit of a relief, unfortunately, I have to say, <laughs> where it's like, oh, thank God I can just be in my house. Yeah, well, I can imagine. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. I mean, I can totally imagine that if you're like flying around everywhere, like talking to so many different groups of people, like so much must be going on in your brain at all times. And I do have like a topic of discussion around that, maybe a little bit later. So you weren't always an MP. Um, I think you've been an an elected MP for like maybe the past four years or so. Um, I think yeah, around that. Yeah. And then before that, you were a human rights and constitutional lawyer. And then before that, (laughs) your family had actually come to New Zealand from Iran via Malaysia and Fiji. Well, we never got to, um, because we, like, I didn't even go to Fiji until a couple of years ago for the first time, because the idea was we had the ticket with a stop over here and where we would claim asylum and so we never got there but yeah it was via Malaysia (laughs) to cut a story short. For a lot of New Zealanders I think we kind of all know you as like New Zealand's first elected MP with a refugee background but I'd love to hear more about like your life before coming to New Zealand. Do you remember much? You were quite young so Yeah, well, I was nine. I think there's like a little sweet spot. We've talked about this a lot amongst my friends who are from migrant backgrounds where, you know, like if you leave before you're sort of five or six, you're very much just, you're almost not even a first generation migrant, you know, like you have very little memory of whatever's gone before and you might not even have kind of that kind of language proficiency to have a normal conversation anymore whereas if you arrive sort of in your teens you are a foreigner for much of your life because like you're kind of maybe it's like the kind of gender social dynamic stuff because you're you're culturally you know retain kind of that difference whereas there's this weirdo sweet spot (laughs) when if you kind of come around 10 you sit in between so I've like I lost my accent really quickly and my parents didn't you know they never ever will be at that level of having um integrated to a point where their language skills are like at at that level of not even having an accent but I definitely remember Iran I was nine when I arrived I was almost 10 and I had you know I had a few years of being at school there and it, it I guess it means that I have a very live memory of the refugee experience in terms of what what makes you a refugee which is the tensions in society and the oppression just like rising and rising and rising and you I don't think anyone can really shield children from that. And when by the time you're sort of nine or 10, you really can tell that the adults around you are in distress. Is that something that you understood 
what your family was getting into before you left Iran or? Yeah, everyone around us was just trying to leave. <laughs> like it was, it, it, as long as I can remember, there was these conversations about either someone who we knew, like a family friend or somebody who was no longer around. And so it was, you know, those hushed conversations about, you know, that they'd maybe cross the border through Turkey or Pakistan or whatever people were doing or getting somehow getting a false passport and crossing the border so that you could, because, you know, that's the thing about refugees. You can't actually legally leave an oppressive regime like the one in Iran without being somehow implicated in the regime, to be honest. <laughs> At that time, it was that kind of us or them vibe within Iran. But I think the difference was that my parents' generation were the generation that went through that change of regime. So the wild, oppressive, you know, the kind of so-called Islamic law, to be honest, they were just making it up as they went along, that government, you know, as oppressive regimes do. And But they hung their hat on it being Islamic, but whatever it was. Um, that change came about while my parents were sort of young adults. And so they were in very live distress. It wasn't something that had just been around forever. It was happening to them in real time. And so I think to that extent, it was it, it, they really didn't even think about how to shield us, my generation, as the children who were coming up there. And and we were all learning together how to cope with that. So, you know, how to start dressing differently so you don't get arrested, you don't get raided, how to, like, you know, keep the music down, look out for the phone being tapped. I mean, these things just sound crazy, but they were very it's, – it's really normal. Like, Iranians live like that now. That decade that when I was born was when these new rules and this level of oppression was just beginning. So people were sh in shock, like it wasn't normal. Um, so they kept talking about it and they kept talking about how to – and then, of course, a war began when I was um, quite young as well. So Saddam Hussein's Iraq was at war with the Islamic Republic of Iran and the U.S. openly backed Saddam and uh, secretly backed Iran. So they were selling weapons to both sides of that war, which I always say is, you know, that's that's what refugees are made of. <laughs> And that's kind of part of the work that I do with the defence portfolio now. It's quite surreal to kind of be sitting in some of these committee meetings interrogating whether or not New Zealand should be, for example, we do sell weapons and military products to the likes of the Saudi regime. And, and to be kind of sitting there going, I was a child in the Middle East living through a war that Western nations profited from, and I now have the responsibility of like bringing that to this room and, you know, and how do you do that? So part of being the first refugee MP, I guess, is kind of continuing to remember that experience and continuing to remember that that's what representation has to mean. Like we've been missing from these decision-making tables and maybe it's okay to bring some of that emotion into it, you know. <laughs> so what was your experience like as a child asylum seeker coming into New Zealand? So I had, I guess I that there was that kind of very rosy beginning because because it had been such a long time coming that we were going to escape that oppression. And especially for my mom, you know, it was really about escaping a regime that targeted women with particular zealousness. You know, we were um, 
suddenly worth half of a man in law, like literally, you know, women couldn't divorce, women couldn't get custody of children, women couldn't do all sorts of things, travel or all of our property rights, all of that kind of thing was gone. And, you know, as as a woman who really didn't want to, and, and my dad too, I mean, they really didn't want to raise a little girl in that context. So it was something that was celebrated for us, even though we were losing everything, even though my parents were really, really losing um, you know, their language and culture and family and becoming essentially poverty stricken, they were really, really celebratory of this idea that we were going to have human rights and democracy and, you know, they'd been activists. So it, we, I remember that kind of beginning of it to be a, like we were elated and, and it was kind of with excitement that I went to school and met all these people that I didn't I didn't kind of couldn't, couldn't speak to even, so that was that was nice. And I think the first, and I'm still um, friends with the very very first friend that I made as a little nine year old in primary school. And I know it was so it's so crazy. She came. Her name's Karen, and she's a um, she's actually a, a clinical psychologist with ADHD. So we talk about mental health a lot. Anyway, leaving that to one side, we were like these little kids in the middle of like Calston or wherever in West Auckland where I we lived and um you know and she was like this blue-eyed blonde blonde little girl and I was like this little couldn't speak English refugee child <laughs> and we made friends um so that was all really beautiful but then I guess you start to realize that my parents were these good little immigrants. So they had asked about the good schools and whatever, and they were trying to get us into the, into the grammar zone. So we moved to Mount Eden and to a total hellhole little, like a unit that like just the only thing they could afford. And it was just all mold and oh, hideous. Yeah. And mom, yeah, mom remembers. I just like started weeping when I saw it, <laughs> She's, but they were like, you know, they were trying to like make a better life and get into the school zone, whatever. Um, so it was kind of there that I suddenly realized when, once I went to a different school and once I was away from that kind of working New Zealand context that we didn't have a lot and actually, I mean, I know that that kind of grammar zone area now is very much, um, I guess, East Asian migrants are a very visible part of that community and have been for a couple of decades now. But when we moved there, it was very much just Pākehā, very old sort of as long as as much as you can get old money for New Zealand. And it was just a very starkly different context to Calston. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can imagine. So it's, that's when it started to set in where it was like, oh, you know, and all of the things that, you know, young girls have to deal with is being preteens and kind of the beauty standards and all of that stuff, which feels very, very important and devastating. At the time, at yes. Age. Very much. Yeah. So. Um, did, did everyone around you know about your family's uh, situation? And No, 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 not at all. So we, well, I think there's a definite shame that comes for refugees. And so my parents never really talked about it. I, I knew about it because we had to go through the whole case. You know, you have to you have a lawyer and you go through the whole investigation and you, you, you know, give evidence and all of that stuff. So we, I'd just gone through that refugee determination process with my parents. I knew what refugees were and I knew that that's what we were. But and even, you know, even when I put myself forward as a candidate and people started talking about it and I was talking about it and campaigning to lift the refugee quota as a refugee. And my dad sort of said to me, he was like, oh, I saw you in the Herald, you know, and, she, and he goes, 
you know, you don't have to say you're a refugee. You know, you didn't decide that. We were refugees, but like you were just the child. You don't have to. And I realized like he's still carrying a little bit of that. And to some extent what I was doing is like trying to lift, you know, his generation out of that kind of. So it's, yeah, it, I mean, it's still a really live conversation now where refugee communities do say to me, like, why do you say you're a refugee? We want to we wanna stop identifying as refugees. We'd rather say former refugee. And we have that conversation where I'm like, yeah, but some people are currently refugees and I don't want them to feel degraded, like it's something you've got to quickly shed. But it's a real, I mean, they have a point too where they're like, well, actually, we'd just rather be New Zealanders now and not be defined by our refugee status. I have wondered at that actually because in basically all of the articles and things that you are in, you're often, your refugee background is often brought up and you're often described as you know, refu- first refugee MP. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I always wondered, like, is that something that you've chosen whether or whether that's something that the media has ascribed to you or? The only discomfort that I had with it, it was the media, I think, or t- trying to remember how it came about. I, I definitely realised quickly that there was significance in that because I, I hadn't realised that I would be the first and it was like, oh, yeah, that is, you know, that's, it's okay to talk about that. That's something that's been missing in terms of representation. But then the idea of being the first refugee MP, the only discomfort that I had with it wasn't with the word or being identified as currently being a refugee. It was with the idea, I, I felt like it could be a tokenistic thing where you're then, you're then expected to literally represent a very diverse group of people. You know, refugees are from all over the world and, and we're young and old and queer and, you know, whatever. And so um, so I kind of was like, oh, well, that's, this is just one person. That was my one thing that I had to get my head around. But I, I knew quite immediately that I, need, I was okay with the la- like wearing the label because there's no shame in it. And then realizing and hearing from more and more people um how they felt about it it's kind of been something that I've examined since but I I still feel comfortable that for me it's okay like it's I, I don't feel the need to be a former refugee but I respect that some people you know do want to hmm. yeah yeah so. totally and in terms of fitting in and, you know, integrating into Kiwi society and all that kind of stuff that us migrant kids have to deal with, what was that experience like for you? One of the, like, I guess, bad news, good news. Um, <laughs> I think the saddest part of it, having reflected on it because I was writing the book and I sat down and kind of really thought about it, and I only wanted to tell the refugee story, but I ended up having to like it, it felt like I needed the politics in it about anyway. So I've thought a lot more deeply about the bits that are the refugee story. And I think that, um, and I knew that I had, I wanted to tell it as like my family story, not because we're all homely little family bodies, but it was, it's like, it is my parents' story. Um, and I think the saddest thing is that we watch our parents and those of us who, who migrate at an age where we can remember both sides of life before and after migration it's watching your parents become something else and because they as adults are much more at the front lines of that so you know seeing my parents as um these really political intellectual sort of 
activists with a friend group and with, you know, in jokes and pizza nights and fashion and whatever they were into, kind of turning into these hardworking, head down migrants that couldn't really connect with their peer group here in New Zealand. And and mum, uh, you know, talks about that um, with me or has done quite often throughout the years where it's like, oh, I couldn't really talk about books anymore. So even though, you know, she'd meet other women who'd read the same books or been into the same line of politics or whatever, she couldn't communicate her own thoughts with the level of like complexity that you would need to make those friendships work. So she would kind of talk about gardening and cooking and work or whatever. And, you know, she ended up working in retail and in hospo and, you know, and she was actually a child psychologist who'd hoped to be an academic. And my dad did, um, green energy research because he was he was an agricultural engineer so and he never worked in that again either so it's kind of you know you're watching them change and kind of not really being able to as a child or a young teen be able to really process that but just kind of feeling that communal slight degradation you know Mm -hmm. that kind of grief yeah you do feel it you just don't quite you know and they stopped being able to help me with all my homework you know they could help with like maths but not any of the other stuff and yeah it's really interesting hey because I mean my experience is kind of different just because I came over to New Zealand when I was very young um and so I didn't know a life before that but I often think what would my parents lives be like if they hadn't left like where like how big of a manager or a leader or whatever would my dad be right now or like yes exactly yeah or like what would my mum be doing like here she was a housewife which is a tremendous more than full-time job but because like she doesn't have the language doesn't have the education here uh, there's only there was only so much she could do and it's it's that kind of how would she be interacting with her community of equals and how would that look for her yeah yeah it's yeah it's (laughs) it's this weird thing where there's like a life before and a life after but it's also like what would I be doing you know would I be a lawyer would I be married would I have kids would I be like twice divorced like most of my age group back in Iran because there's this no there's literally this thing because people aren't allowed to like live with their partners or even have relationships so people get married and then divorced and then married you know like it's there's like a middle class group of Iranians that are just it's so funny it's just become the culture is, is that accepted in society then like divorce is fine Pretty, it, just it, it, I mean there's a there's obviously there's also very devoutly religious people in Iran but there's like a, there is a class divide when it comes to which which is what kind of underpinned the revolution to some extent was that they're inequality had grown to a point where the working Iranians who were more conservative, more religious, probably to some extent benefited from the, the initial change and the and the kind of the Islamic law and the, the oppressive measures that the regime introduced were kind of presented as a class warfare measure. And yeah, so I, you know, I don't want to talk for everyone, but there is definitely a middle-class culture, as I can see it from afar, <laughs> where people seem to just get divorced really easily and, you know, good for them. Um, if you're forced into, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It really brings into question, like, what is the significance of marriage then? Yeah. It's so easy to dissolve it. <laughs> well, it's, it's funnily, 
enough, like liberalized Iranian culture in that mm, way, mm. because you can't just have relationships and break them off and then marry the one person that you're going to be with forever. Yeah. People are just like, all right, fine. I'll just get married and then get divorced <laughs> later. It's like, yeah. It's had the opposite effect. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so I guess like hearing about your background and stuff, it's really easy to draw the connection between where you've come from and where you have been to in terms of your work, in terms of going to law and especially specializing in like human rights. Was that mostly informed by your personal experiences? Um, yeah, I think so. I mean, initially I was a criminal defense lawyer, so I do, you know, and, and I do see that as you know, one of the purest forms of human rights law that you can get kind of at that front line in the New Zealand system where you are able to very clearly in a in a an institution that's set up for that sort of stand up to the police or the Crown as, a, as representing the government and sort of apply the Bill of Rights Act and say that you can't detain people unlawfully, you can't search them unlawfully, you can't surveil them, you can't, you know, and that race is an issue and all of these things, which um, in a place like Iran you can't do. And and often, you know, defence lawyers or lawyers who do challenge either unfair criminal allegations or stand up in family court and fight for women or whatever, are themselves imprisoned in a place like Iran. So it kind of feels really precious to me that we have these very, very imperfect justice institutions, but that there is there is a value system there that says that everyone does deserve a defence, for example. But I didn't intend on going into the law at all, and I, I thought I was going to just do human rights, and I went into work for Amnesty International and then kind of realised it was... I did, you know, I had this like law degree, but it wasn't quite enough to give me the skill set that I need to go and apply human rights and make them enforceable. Um, so that next step became really clear to me while I was interning at Amnesty. I was kind of like, mm, I've, I can see what my dream job would be in terms of being a human rights advocate, but actually where I would be most effective and useful, given that I have a law degree, is if I go and learn how to be in court. But I think, I mean, in terms of the um, the human rights law in particular, it, I would say that it's very much informed by my parents' values in, in terms of leaving a place like Iran. After, after trying to fight that regime and, and, and being very political but kind of going, no, this isn't okay, and the kind of stories that they told and the kind of stories that their peers told and highlighted and you know even now I think Iranian women lawyers have been really prominent in terms of being the human rights defenders Mm. back home um well they would have been some of the most oppressed groups right yeah that's right and it's just it's just breathtaking to me that they keep fighting someone like Nasreen Sutudeh who's a prisoner of conscience now and Shirin Abadi who was a um Nobel Peace Laureate, who's now in exile but was has been imprisoned from time to time in Iran before she escaped. So, you know, just uh, being from that very oppressed, violently oppressed group and still continuing to to work in that system. And it's nothing compared to anything that we do here. I, like. I mean, it's hugely inspirational mm. any which way you look at it. And I, yeah, I, I wanted to ask you as well, like, you have so much going on and you must also feel a lot of like pressure to be that representation for several groups. 
Do you ever have days where like it all just feels too much? I think we all do. We, I mean, for, and I, I, I don't mean we all humanity, even though, yes, that's true. We all as humans feel like that. But I think if you are from a marginalised minority background and you're doing anything that means you have to identify as such on any part of your day, <laughs> then, yeah, you definitely have that moment. And But, I mean, it's, you know, friends of mine who, a very good friend of mine who I have this conversation with all the time as a doctor on the COVID response team at ADHB, another friend of mine who's a teacher out west, again, in Auckland with a big student body who are migrant or Pacific background girls at high school age so we you know and it's like representing an east asian minority what during a pandemic on the covid response team (laughs) has been heavy for this doctor (laughs) being a um, south asian migrant background teacher trying to hold space for young women in west auckland is heavy you know so we all do it in different ways it's not yeah i i happen to do it with like more of a public label but right yeah yeah hosting a podcast as a (laughs) minority woman (laughs) I mean (laughs) yeah so where do you find your motivation or inspiration from to keep doing the work that you're doing um I I think some of the wins sometimes hold us up you know having the New Zealand deployments in Iraq and Afghanistan finally pulled was nice even though you know um and then (laughs) and then having the latest uh, you know complete devastating events in Afghanistan happen and have that has been incredibly demoralizing it's been one of the hardest things I've worked on in my four years in parliament probably the hardest thing to work on having that community have someone to come to with all of their loved ones, their names, their locations, just having someone to call on the phone when they need to and knowing that they might not have had that, you know, and, and people sending things through that, that, you know, my dad and I can translate because, you know, there's someone that has that language skill in, in parliament and having, but, but the government's been unmoved. So we're still at that point when New Zealand's one of the only Western countries, I think, who hasn't said that we will take any at-risk Afghans or family members of Afghan New Zealanders. So it's really, really clearly the value of having that representative voice. But at the same time, it's sort of like there isn't enough of us. Our our voices, our experiences are not felt enough and seen enough in the halls of power for there to be a change with kind of like one person screaming <laughs> about it. So, yeah. Yeah. Do, do you, I mean, I think this all kind of relates to what I asked you before, but like, do you feel like there's a lot of weight on your shoulders? Like the responsibility is very heavy. Um, I mean, yes, like for sure. But again, I kind of think it's, you know, how, like, I, I guess, how does the hijabi woman feel, you know, post-Christchurch, and we're all living in a post-Christchurch terror attack world now, and um, walking her kids to school or an older, you know, and and the East Asian community when the pandemic first broke, because, you know, nobody 
identifies us as being different than each other. And then the South Asian community after the latest terror attack happened in Lynn Mall and like people are walking and you like none of us can shed our skin. You know, we're walking outside and we're interacting and going to work and going to school or uni or whatever else. And the, the little microaggressions are heavy. The macroaggressions of being excluded from systems and being attacked or whatever violently, you know, like everyone is carrying this load. So I'm in a really privileged place where I actually have like a support system around my work Although I do think that's the next kind of frontier because we keep sort of putting like one person on TV or one person in parliament (laughs) and it's like, well, actually, you know, is there, is, are we able to get the same level of support in terms of the institutional mechanisms as everybody else whose issues are well known in those institutions? Do we have enough writers and funding grant? committee members or whatever else in TV and film to like carry that one person that's on screen. And do we have enough advisors and um, comms people and whatever in parliament to carry the minority MPs? Um, So there's all of that, but I mean, at least I'm in a very privileged position where I can have, and I I can um, access mental health care. There's all of that. On the point on like representation and being like a woman of color and like a really public role do you feel like being a woman of color has attracted like a certain amount of attention that maybe your other colleagues may not attract yes no for sure and we have it confirmed all the time so you know I think we kind of um sometimes as marginalized minority background people say these things and then there's this thing of like well you know, does it just feel that way? Does it, you know, and it's kind of the societal gaslighting happens. But the last director of communications that we had, who's now gone to work for Auckland Council, damn it. <laughs> well, we, we actually, no, we have just hired a new person who's awesome. But anyway, she was very good about saying, you know, I advise every MP in this caucus. So eight people last term, 10 people this term. And she's like, nobody, like there's no way that we get the same responses online or to news media or in any context that communication happens when it's Marama or Gauri's doing it that then when it's any other MP that I advise. And she was very like, this doesn't, you know, you, nobody even gets fact-checked to the same extent. Nobody gets, you know, like it's that thing of like, if she's advising James to say something and preparing him for something, she's like much more relaxed about it than if Madam is fronting it because every little, you know, yeah, it's just dot will be, right? yeah, and the yeah. headline ends up being like the most minor, mm. like pause <laughs> in giving the <laughs> answer rather than the whatever. But then obviously in terms of the responses in online forums, it's, you know, the wild, ridiculous um you know, replies and whatever else. Although I feel like it's, I mean, it was very intense to walk into. And I think we all know that the sentiment is there, but it's the, like, it's the volume (laughs) that that kind of ends up being very confronting. But I do think that now having spoken about it a lot more and then having others feel emboldened enough to kind of say yes or share their experiences or whatever, there's now a, like a, you know, like I do feel like there's a community of people online who come in and do the responses 
you know, like the solidarity feels very real as well now. And maybe that's because we've had good um, natural conversations post Christchurch. Maybe it's been just, you know, like my own little community around me. And it's kind of, I guess it's a cross section of all of those things. It feels safer now, not because there's less abuse, but because there's others that are willing to come in and fortify us, you know, and kind of, yeah. Yeah, you definitely see like people really jumping in and yeah. you can kind of just like leave people to themselves and they'll yes. just like fight amongst themselves. Totally, totally. <laughs> and sometimes I get like a particularly offensive piece of, or like like a pertinent bit of abuse where it's like, this is a conversation that like I, I'll be angry that that person said the thing, but I have like the urge to reshare it with like a comment or something and like tell the person off or respond by re like retweeting or whatever. And now I, cause I used to do that and, and it felt really vindicating because people would come in and it would be like Sean Plunkett said something, you know, whatever. But sometimes it'll just be a random, tr- like horrible racist, misogynistic troll. And now I do pause. Cause I know if I do that, they will get the volume of <laughs> counter, you know, like I know that I now have that platform yeah. where, and I'm like, oh, it's probably just some older, you know, <laughs> like, like do I really want, you know, and it's, yeah. So it's, it's a funny place to sit now. It's yeah. The platform is precious. <laughs> so a few years ago, or was it a couple of years ago, you also, found out that you had MS or like multiple sclerosis. Yeah. Can you tell me about that journey? Yeah. So it was actually, um, I guess I had my first, uh, what they call MS attack. It was Waitangi weekend that it started. And I remember because it was Waitangi weekend um, and everything was closed and I couldn't get to it, check it. With medic- anyway, it was right after I'd been elected. So it would have been twenty. 20- 18 early early 2018 and so multiple sclerosis is a chronic illness that you know you never cure you kind of live with forever whereby your immune system for some reason begins to attack your nerves and the tissues around your nerves can wear down if the attacks continue and so you get and it literally means multiple scars. So you get these little scars on your brain and your spine and wherever there's nerves, essentially your nervous system starts to wear down. And I think most people kind of associate it with, um, this is what I've been told. This is like immediately when you come into the health system, they talk about how you shouldn't expect, you shouldn't expect um, to end up in a wheelchair because that's what everyone expects and that's what everyone associates MS with. And, you know, so eventually I guess it was the case before the higher level sort of medication that's available now that you would, your spinal nerves would wear down and you would, you know, it would affect your mobility. But there's this whole other thing that no one talks about, which is that because it's also attacking your brain, that you actually end up with sight and speech impediments. And so that it's, it's you know, Anyway, so my first attack was my left eye began to lose sight and I almost completely lost sight in that eye. And I kind of did that thing that I think a lot of us do where I was like, oh, it's just some weird thing. It'll come back in a couple of days and it'll, you know, and it just kept getting worse. And I was like, oh, it's, but, you know, and I kept, I actually went back to work and <laughs> was like, like doing our little round at like our first core cosmetic back from Waitangi. And it's like, oh, I can't actually see out this eye. And people are like, what? <laughs> go to the doctor. <laughs> like, please just go to the doctor. 
and I and I did. And then at hospital, they were like, oh, um, you know, it's optic neuritis, which is your optic nerve is snapped or worn down or whatever. And it's, in 50% of cases, this is a sign of MS. So, you know, we're going to do, you have to you need a CT scan and all this stuff. MRI, it's, yeah. Anyway, so that in the, in the public health system, it's about a six-month wait. And I was, you know, just losing my mind. So I tried to go private. And this is something that I just really recently sort of talked about, which is that I went, my usual GP, who's wonderful, was away. And so I kind of walked into my local GP clinic and paid, like, because I wasn't registered there and you have to pay, like, the proper amount. So it's like 100 bucks or something ridiculous to go to just see a GP. And all I needed was a referral. And I was like, it's going to be worth it. I just need this MRI referral I've got the bit of paper from the ophthalmologist at Auckland Hospital saying this person needs an MRI and we've referred her in the public system because there's a 50% chance you've got MS. So I walked in and I talked to this older woman, GP, and I like sat down and I was like, here's the thing, this is what's happened, please look at this bit of paper, I just need a private referral to get an MRI. And she looked at me and she goes, um, I think that you just need to go home, write down your symptoms and try to be rational. And I was like, what? What does that mean? <laughs> I don't know. So I was, it was like this weird experience of being told to be rational. And she was like, I think you can use that money later on. You just need to save it. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm getting, like, financial advice. Like, what is happening? I've been told that I'm irrational and that I need money. And what is triggering this for this person? Like, what about me has led to this? It was so interesting. It was so frustrating. Like, I'm already stressed out. And it was a real taste of, like, she wouldn't read the referral from Auckland Hospital. She wouldn't even look at it. She was like, well, look, I'm not your doctor, so I'm not going to look at your file. And I was like, but why did I come here? <laughs> like, what? And, and, like, why am I getting told? Anyway, so it was a really interesting, very stark, very frustrating taste of what I think minorities and women constantly talk about in terms of healthcare access where you're not believed and you're not seen as being rational and you're seen as overreacting and you're like even holding a referral from specialists. I couldn't, you know, and so I kind of, as I was leaving, I was like, well, you know, I'll, I'll go to Ascot or whatever because I, I've just had a couple of days off work because of this and I can't, whatever the cost of an MRI is, it's not worth me lo- missing another couple of days. And she goes, what do you do? <laughs> I was like, I'm a member of parliament. <laughs> and, like, left. <laughs> and I did go back and like tell Madam and she was like, that has definitely happened to me. But it's literally an impediment to people getting the diagnosis. Like I yes. was, I was in the end lucky that my first symptom was a really serious one because most people who have MS just kind of don't even get access to medication for years because their symptoms are um, the nerve damage will be like in their arm or leg or whatever. And so they'll kind of come in and they'll go, my arm feels numb. Hmm. You know, it just feels numb. And they'll be like, oh, it's nothing, like go away. And so until you actually, and then, you know, my eye completely recovered. But if you have that happen a few times, so you have – an attack, it lasts for a few weeks and then your nerves um, sort of repair and then the same thing will happen again and again if you don't get treatment until it's worn out completely. And so the disability becomes permanent. And so most people don't get an MS diagnosis 
for years until the disability does set in and becomes permanent. And women are three times more likely than men to have MS. So if we're the population that's not being believed, especially if we have vague symptoms, then it's actually, you know, anyway, so that was a wild experience. Yeah, yeah. But um, your eye is fully healed it's, now. It is fully healed. And I am on the most aggressive treatment for MS that you can get um, because I'm like a kill it with fire person. But it's it does make me completely immunocompromised. So this is another good news, bad news story in the sense that we have access to care here in New Zealand and we have access to like the most comprehensive thing, which is an infusion. It's a little bit like chemotherapy where they inject you. So I go into hospital once every six months. I mean, it doesn't have the same side effects as chemo, but it, it's as sort of aggressive in the sense that it kills your immune system completely. And it literally kills the cells. Um, so you feel a little bit wounded afterwards. But, um, you know, so I'm in a hospital for six hours or so every six months. And I'm incredibly grateful that I have that access. But then, yeah, so the good news is that I have the best chance of slowing the progression of MS and living a normal life. But the bad news is that we now have a viral infection <laughs> pandemic and I yeah, don't and have people an aren't system. like doing what they need to to yeah. help protect others. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's it's real fun. Um <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so you, you mentioned before about the doctor saying to you, oh, don't worry, like mm. medicine's great these days. Um you won't end up in a wheelchair. I read the piece that you wrote for The Guardian where you mentioned that as well. Yeah. Um and you also mentioned you know, like, why is it always framed like that? Why is it not kind of like, it's okay if you do end up in a wheelchair? I was really shocked to hear that. I hadn't, you know, in the context that I live in, the disabilities rights issues that we kind of support, like, I I know that it was all well-meaning and it was, you know, these incredible doctors and nurses that were just trying to be supportive, but it was really interesting that there wasn't a vantage point where, well, A, that nobody was even talking to me about the other symptoms. Because to me, the brain, the sight, the speech stuff is like the most pressing issue. But that we somehow we think of mobility, disabilities affecting your mobility are like the most devastating. And, you know, to some people there are, but no one was asking that question. Mm. <laughs> um, and that there wasn't even a question of, like us having reached a place where we were just focused on accessibility and equality. It was just all about, oh my God, don't worry, you won't become one of those people. So that was quite shocking. Do you still feel like there's a lot of really heavy stigma against disability and there's a lot of sort of ableism, even when people don't even realise that what they're saying or doing is actually super ableist? Well, totally. And with MS, even with the treatments that are available now it's still a chronic illness it comes with um, things like needing time off to go and get the treatment having lots of blood tests having the MRIs as well to monitor the progress so it's all kind of in the employment context you are a little bit more high maintenance than others because you need that kind of time off some of the symptoms are fatigue related and whatever else so it's and that's a very you know to, to me I'm experiencing a very low level of disability but it's but I'm in that kind of chronic illness disability community and having those conversations it was really interesting to me where people were really split on whether or not to tell your friends and employers that you have MS 
if you can hide it. And it was because of the stigma. So even at that level, it was like, you're not going to get promoted. You're not going to get uh, seen as someone who can handle more responsibility or more profile or whatever. And the reason I kind of ended up coming out and publicly and talking about MS was that we were doing, someone said to me, and this was the absolute, like with the best of intentions and this person themselves had an autoimmune illness, an older woman said to me, don't, don't tell people that you've got MS, don't go public with it because we're about to do the list ranking in the Green Party and you won't be, you'll be downranked. And I was like, what? (laughs) Um, And it was totally, totally for her to protect me. And she didn't believe that I was less capable. So she was like, don't do it. You're, you're, you know, you're great. You know, whatever she was being encouraging, but she fully had been living in a world where that was the reality that people would literally prevent you from accessing better opportunities and having more responsibility and more of a voice if they thought you had a chronic illness like MS. And it was like, no, you, oh my God, now I have to do it because, <laughs> and, and, you know, and of course I wasn't downright and I'm still here. Um, but, it, you know, that, that people are living with that very real experience. Yeah. I mean, so taking everything that we've talked about into context, like, I, I can't remember if it was the reporter who gave you this label or if it was part of your quote, but it was about you being like a truly representative MP. Um, oh, <laughs> no, that was not my quote. <laughs> Someone okay. else must have said it <laughs> about <else>. me. <laughs> okay. Well, there's another label for you. Um, <laughs> um, but like, is that how you feel? Or like, do you feel like that's like an accurate representation of you? Um. I think that it, I don't think that the labels make us representative. Like I I do think there's, um, there's certainly, you know, if you're just standing in a caucus photo, there's still value in that caucus photo, not looking all, there's this incredible photo um, that Marilyn Waring has on the cover of her book, where she's the only woman in the National Party caucus back, 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 you know, when she was first elected and it's just the sea of older Pākehā men. And that was, I mean, that was obviously the reality back then. So I do think there's power in just being, but I don't think that makes you truly representative unless you're kind of striving every single day to kind of keep bringing the lived experience to policymaking, to decision-making, to kind of your work and in terms of what communities you prioritise, whose voice you prioritise, whose. And it's so, so hard because I think the pressure is to just stand in the photo, like toe the party line or like just be at parliament. And I don't think anyone, you know, that's not any given institution. It's just that these institutions were designed deliberately to serve the interests and the voices of a particular group. And we're new. So it's kind of hard, <laughs> but it, but it, unless you do that, I don't think it's enough to just be an MP with MS, an MP that's a refugee, an MP, you know, like you do have to constantly stop and be like, oh my God, does the COVID response include immunocompromised guidelines? Oh my God, it doesn't. Well, I have to call, you know, the minister, whatever. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. So part of it falls upon us as minority MPs, for example, to not just stand in the photo and kind of get the tick box on whether it's the whole of parliament or your political party or whatever, 
but then a lot of it also falls on the institutions. So, you know, if, if you're casting a minority person in a role, well, who are your writers and who are the people behind the camera and who is, you know, whose story is really being told? Because it's kind of not enough for us to just kind of <laughs> be there in, in a story that somebody else wrote about us and how much, you know, how much space are people really making for us to engineer the change? Yeah, absolutely. Um, cool. Well, thank you so much for your time. It's been such a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you for your time. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm so glad that uh, we managed to talk in the end. Finally, so, yeah. Yes. <laughs> What a delightful conversation. I really enjoyed speaking with Gora's and she really was so generous with both her time and being open about her experiences. If you want to learn more about her journey, her book is called Know Your Place and you can also follow her on social media. I will put some links in the show notes. As always, thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and share as well as follow on Instagram and Facebook. Just search for Not Your Token Minority Podcast. Mm-hmm.